Now, as we open the scriptures today, and please do this with, a, with your device or your Bible, we're going to be looking at the last chunk of Hebrews chapter 11. And never have so many lives and stories been uh, crunched into so few verses. As a result, I've got some bad news. Here it is. We're not going to get to delve into each life and story that's alluded to in these verses today. If we did, we'd be here till 3 or 4 in the afternoon. I know that makes you sad, but I want to thank you in advance for your cooperation on this matter. We're going to skim. If you're a visitor or a seeker with us, you're going to gauge quickly that we're reflecting on the nature of Christian faith in this sermon and in the series that it's concluding. We hope that this will enhance in some way your understanding of Christian life. Uh, we hope that it might override any flawed or ugly ideas about Christianity that you may have picked up along the way. And if you're not curious about what I have to say today, then feel free to heed the alternative instruction, which is in the margin of your bulletin, and use the sermon slot to take a snooze. Onwards. You'll recall that our present series in Hebrews 11 is one where we've been defining faith in a certain way. We've said that faith is not just about believing the right things. More than that, it's about a life that takes God seriously. We've said that faith is the total alignment of our lives with Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way, we can say that faith for the Christian is a life that is utterly unintelligible unless the God revealed in Jesus Christ is in fact the Lord. Your faith and mine is the concern of the book of Hebrews, the perseverance and thriving of our faith. And this reaches a climax in chapter 11. The words that we find throughout this chapter are deeply pastoral, as is the letter in its entirety. They were written, as you'll notice in chapter 10, to comfort an ancient church facing certain struggles. Not comfort in the sense of hot chocolate by a warm fire, but comfort in the Elizabethan sense, providing strength and fortitude and endurance in the face of events and people that might tempt us, as chapter 10, verse 39 says, to shrink back from commitment to God. Now, these words are written for our comfort, too. I need them, and I am certain as a pastor in this church that there are many in here today who need them as well. So let's plunge in, and as we do, I want to talk to you about 2.5 things. I want to talk to you first about the necessary outworking of Christian faith. I want to talk to you second about the empowering object of Christian faith. And third, point five, I want to talk to you about the delay. This last item is quite brief, so I could not give it full point status without causing resentment in the other two. The necessary outworking of Christian faith. According to Hebrews, Christian faith is not just some quiet personal preference. It's not just some inner feeling or inclination, and it's not just some opinion that we keep to ourselves. It's very common to envision religious faith in these terms, especially in our culture, and even in churches. I know a lot of Christians who think about their faith in these terms, and thus their faith remains largely disconnected from all the other aspects of their lives. Now the Bible in the book of Hebrews takes a decidedly different definition of faith. It says that faith involves enacted allegiance. It involves loving obedience to God. 
It involves concrete fidelity to Christ. Now, this isn't to say that faith can be reduced down to action. To be sure, faith does have internal aspects. But while the internal and external dimensions of faith are distinct, they are also inseparable. Biblically speaking, the nature of faith is like a tightrope walker going over Niagara Falls. With a cord strung over the falls, he's ready to mesmerize the crowd, and he asks them if they believe he can do it. And they shout, yes, we believe! And he does it, and he comes back, and he says, I'm going to do it again, but this time with a wheelbarrow. Do you believe I can go across the tightrope with this wheelbarrow? And they say, yes, we believe you can, and he does it, and he comes back, and he gets ready to do it a third time, and he says... Do you believe I can do it with somebody in the wheelbarrow? And they say, yes, we believe you can. And he says, who wants to volunteer to get in? Nobody said anything. For the Bible, faith involves getting into the wheelbarrow. Faith has necessary outworkings. Our passage today takes this for granted. And further to this, it tells us that the concrete outworkings of faith in your life and mine can be diverse. We're not dealing with a one-size-fits-all mentality here. The tangible outworkings of faith can and will vary. The signs of faith, the requirements of faith, will often depend on our circumstances, where God has placed us and what's required. It can vary from person to person, church to church, culture to culture, time to time. The outworkings of faith in our lives are not monolithic. But there will be, in fact, there must be outworkings of faith. Let's ponder a few case studies from the text to really drive home this point. And again, follow along if you've got your Bibles open. Our passage contains several types of faith stories. And these stories display the diverse outworkings of faith. So we look at verse 32 through 35a. And here we witness the outworkings of faith that are involved in overcoming opposition, escaping from sure demise, and even rescue, all in the context of regular human history. Consider Gideon. His story is found in the Old Testament book of Judges, chapter 7 and 8. Gideon was one of the leaders in Israel that provided uh, oversight and military support at the time before the monarchy was established. And it just so happened that during his lifetime, Israel was being bullied and threatened by the neighboring Midianite peoples. So Gideon prayed. He made intercession to God, help us. And God spoke. He told Gideon to muster an army. Gideon obeyed. He gathered over 20,000 people, as Judges says. God spoke again. He said, it's too big. I need you to downsize, because when you win this battle, you're going to be tempted to overcredit yourself and undercredit me. So cut down the army. Gideon did that, all the way down to 300 people, and they found victory at God's hand. So faith for Gideon was trusting that God could indeed do it with just a few hundred soldiers. It probably seemed insane to him at that moment. Or consider Daniel. He's the one that the phrase, stopped the mouths of lions, is alluding to. Daniel was an Israelite who lived in exile under the relocation that was forced upon the Jews by the Babylonians. Now, faith for Daniel did not entail overcoming his Babylonian captors. Rather, it involved trusting that God could preserve and prosper him in the situation of exile. 
Now, in Babylon, there was an emperor called Nebuchadnezzar. That's not a name you hear every day. And he had some treacherous advisors who convinced him to issue an edict that prohibited the worship of any god but the emperor, who was considered a god, for a period of 30 days. This was a bit of a trap for Daniel because Daniel's faith was a praying faith. That was the outworking of it. And so he couldn't stop praying to his God and to our God, even though the edict made it illegal. Needless to say, Daniel had a run-in with the imperial popo, and after a speedy trial, he was sentenced to supper, which is to say he was sentenced to become the supper of lions. That's how they executed the death penalty at that time. All of this because of his faith. The lions, however, didn't eat Daniel. Their jaws stayed closed. Perhaps they cuddled him instead. Maybe there was a precious moment. We don't know. Now, verse 35 through 38, we get a sharp turn in a different direction here, so don't get whiplash. Here we encounter what I like to call faith that has loss and deprivation as its outworking. Again, in the context of human history. See, sometimes the outworking of faith is courage under fire and endurance and exacting patience and self-denial. Faith doesn't always get us out of trouble. In fact, sometimes it gets us into trouble. Now, no doubt, many of you are wondering, as I did before I started studying this passage, who on earth is being referenced in these verses about torture and death. If you grew up in church, you didn't learn about the man sawed in half in Sunday school. In fact, you didn't learn about these stories in the Bible at all. Most of them are extra-biblical. Some of those who were tortured were probably a group known as the Maccabean Martyrs. One of them was known as Eleazar, and he was tortured for his faith, and he was asked to eat pork as a sign of violating his faith. But he wouldn't. He spit it out. In verse 37, we read about one who was sawn in two with a wooden saw, as the legend has it. This is probably the prophet Isaiah, also a big figure in the Old Testament. His execution, as the tradition goes, was done at the order of Manasseh, one of Israel's most wicked kings. Isaiah's faith was a faith that spoke truth to power. In faith, he cared more about pleasing God than gratifying the king. And so this made him a critic of the regime, and it wasn't received well. So his ministry of protest and his execution was the outworking of his faith. Now, the faith of all of these people, whether it was a faith that saw overcoming or a faith that saw loss and deprivation, is a worthy faith. That's what verse 38 tells us. These were all people of whom the world was not worthy. Why? Because they showed concrete fidelity to God. They weren't just windbags. They held on to God even when doing so seemed crazy or maybe resulted in suffering. Friends, this is the type of faith that we need and that God wants for us. Worthy faith necessarily has outworkings. Do you know this? Now these stories compel us to think about the condition of our own faith. It's very common for us to worry about the depth of integrity of our faith. As a pastor, I hear people talk about this often. All too often, however, when we make judgments in this arena, we make them based on a faulty definition of faith. 
That's why we tend to preoccupy with the presence or absence of certain inner feelings and sentiments. See, we're all products of the romantic movement, even if you don't know what the heck that is. We think that feelings are the chief and, in fact, exclusive indicator of authentic faith. Now, Hebrews 11 says we need to reframe our way of thinking about this, and then we need to do a faith audit. It says if you want to find out if your faith makes you a person of whom the world is not worthy, then you need to ask some different questions. I want to throw out some of these questions for your consideration. But let me put a quick caveat. In answering these questions, we don't enter into an activity that we do all by your lonesome. It's something we do with other people in the church and in consultation with the Bible. So a few questions to use as we audit the integrity of our faith. First, does your faith, does following Christ ever get you into a bit of trouble? Does your faith ever get you into a bit of trouble? Not because you're a pushy or an obnoxious Christian, but simply because you take God more seriously than other people and institutions and powers in this world. Genuine faith has often gotten God's people into a bit of trouble. I can think of an example from the early church, the Church of the Roman Empire. Christians realized pretty early on that they could not participate in the imperial cult. They could honor Caesar as a political leader. They could respect Roman law and order, but they could not pay homage to the emperor as a divinity. They could not participate in public rituals that suggested that Caesar was a god. This caused problems. See, the Romans at that time were quite pluralistic, not unlike our society. And they could not understand why Christians couldn't follow their god and be part of the Roman imperial cult. But Christians wouldn't do this. And so in this context, they were actually, with great irony, branded as atheists. And that label brought stigma and dispossession, the very things that Jesus experienced when he ran into conflict with the religious authorities. Does your faith ever get you into a bit of trouble? Worthy faith has a tendency to do this. A second question, are you ever experiencing in your life overcoming and liberation as a result of your faith, victories as a result of trusting God more than your own intuitions, your own habits, and your own preferences. Here's an example. Is faith having a remedial effect in your life? Is it helping you to overcome long-time struggles, perhaps struggles in the area of interpersonal relationships and relational mess and brokenness, which touches all of our lives in some way? You see, in situations of human and relational strife, our intuition tends to tell us to do one of two things, fight or flight. It says that we should be aggressive and vengeful or that we should be passive or avoidant. Faith tells us there's a better way. It summons us to use compassion and candor and humility and patience and forgiveness to pursue reconciliation. Faith says that we should take up these traits to give relational friction a redemptive quality and to forge strong and trusting relationships out of the strife that's part of all human experience. Sometimes by loving our enemies, they become our friends. Are you experiencing any of faith's victories? And a third and final question, are you enduring any loss or deprivation or self-denial as a result of your faith? Are there any faith-driven sacrifices in your life? 
Are you ever a martyr? That term just means a witness, a witness to the genuine faith within. Not a martyr necessarily in a bodily sense, but also in a social or a professional or academic or sexual or relational sense. Are you ever a martyr? Let me give an example. The desire for a spouse, a type of deep emotional and physical and sexual and relational intimacy, is one of the strongest that we have as humans. And the desire for a family. Now, in the face of such strong and profound desires, the temptation to break faith can be especially strong because we don't want to be martyrs in this area. We don't want to endure loss or deprivation or self-denial. But let me tell you, some of the most faithful Christians that I know and courageous are those who look that desire in the face with immense longing and say to God, not my will be done, but thine. Those who say to God, I only want this desire satisfied if it is pleasing to you, if it aligns with your will for my life, Father. I only want a spouse if my spouse wants to know and love you, Father. I cannot minimize this difficulty, and I know for a fact that it is felt deeply in this room. It's been part of my experience. I have dear friends who know it right now. I want you to know that faith in this area, where the cost is acutely felt, is a bright and inspiring star for God's people on earth. Friends, if we soberly ask these questions to ourselves from time to time, we might just find that the hypocrisy that's present in the church begins to recede, starting in our own lives, and we become part of a church marked by spiritual integrity. Now, that's an attractive thought. That's part of God's recipe to change the world. Now, these questions lead us to a second point, the empowering object of Christian faith. The lives of the passage of Hebrews serve one decisive purpose, to remind us that the faith that is celebrated here can and should be part of our experience. We are not to be spectators. We are to be participants. Let's think about this. How do we get that faith? What enables this type of faith? Now, based on the people in Hebrews 11, and if you go and read more about them in the Old Testament, you'll know that it's not the result of moral standing or extraordinary gifts or talents or social status or education. It's not the result of our DNA or some instinct and intuition that certain people have but not others. It's got a different source and a source that's available to everyone. Here's a contention. Faith always has an object. It's always built on something. It's always established on someone or some institution or some promise. Faith is always funded. Just as a balloon needs air, so faith demands an object. Let me unpack that. If you ride an airplane, what matters more? Your inner belief that this heavy metal object can fly up in the sky or the actual capacity of the object to hover above the earth with a load of people in it? The latter, it matters immensely. That's how the object of faith works. And the object of faith matters. If you don't get this, you'll never be a participant. You'll always be a spectator. And the astounding faith of Hebrews 11 will elude you. Don't let that happen. Now, according to Hebrews, the empowering object of Christian faith is Jesus Christ. 
That's what chapter 12, verse 2 tells us. Christ is the founder of our faith. Faith built on Christ can experience victories and it can experience courage and poise under fire that confound and defy the world's expectations. What does it mean to have Christ as the object of our faith? That notion can be a bit abstract. So let's probe it and unpack it a bit. It means in the first place that our faith is to be funded by Jesus. And that means that we have to be people whose faith rests not on just what we see, but also what we hear, what Jesus says to us. And what does Jesus tell us? What do we hear in His Word? We hear many things, but one thing is especially important today because it permeates the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, Christ tells us that there is a world above and a world below, transcendent and imminent, heavenly and earthly. There's an eternal and lasting and celestial kingdom, and then there's a transient and passing order in the world. Chapter 11, verse 16. Both of these are part of present reality, but the kingdom above has greater permanence. In other words, this world, this existence, this city, this age, this is not all that there is. This life isn't the only one. There is more. There is something beyond, and it's better, and it exceeds what we can imagine. Entering into this perspective, being mindful of this heavenly reality, something that surpasses our present experience, is essential for the faith that Hebrews sings about. A faith that echoes the outlook of Psalm 103, read earlier. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. There are always two big possibilities before the Christian. An outlook on life which prizes this world, the things seen, or an outlook that is in the first place oriented to the heavenly kingdom, what Hebrews 11.16 calls a better heavenly country an outlook that prizes the things we hear from the voice of God, an outlook that discerns that our present existence is a sojourn existence, that we are pilgrims and that we live in tents. These two choices are always looking us in the face. Which will be first? The faith of Hebrews, the faith of the Christian is a faith which prizes God before all else, a faith that listens to Christ's voice before and after all other voices, and as a result, evaluates everything in light of God's Word. This is the substance of the faith that finds Christ as its empowering object, a faith that can give us courage and poise under fire, a faith that can bring liberation and victory. I want those things. Do you? Moment of honesty. I am well aware that this type of faith, that substance, can be very difficult for us. Jesus' words in this regard have trouble settling into our bones. They may bounce around our mind, but they don't necessarily settle deep into our fiber. Friends, that is to be expected, especially in this context, our society and culture, because we live in a biodome. You know what a biodome is? 
They used to build them back in the 90s, kind of planning for Mars expansion plans. It's like a little habitat that's self-contained and it becomes your world. If you live in a biodome, your apprehension of reality is going to be limited. It's going to be shrunken because you don't have access to anything else further afield. You may know a lot about what's in your little world, but you can't have a full and mature understanding of reality. Big, full reality. Canadian social philosopher Charles Taylor of McGill hits this nail on the head better than anyone else I know. He says that we live in a materialistic biodome, metaphorically speaking. Again, this doesn't mean we never think about heaven or things above. But it means that if you deduce what we really believe based on the way we live our lives, you'll find out that we do live in a biodome. Now, in describing our biodome, Charles Taylor says that we're trapped in this world. We're trapped in this world. We live under a very strong cultural narrative that reduces our sense and appreciation for anything transcendent, anything more than here and now. We've been conditioned. And so we struggle to imagine in meaningful ways that there's more to reality than meets the eye. We think that this life, this present existence, is basically it. There may be angels singing, but we can't hear them because our ears have been plugged. Now, the accuracy of Taylor's diagnosis can be demonstrated in a variety of ways. Let me give you one brief example. Attitudes towards dying. 500 years ago, you asked someone, what's the most desirable type of death? They would say, I want a slow, long death. Right? They need time to make amends, to seek relational reconciliation, to get their affairs in order, to make confession. You ask people today, nobody says that. How you want to die? Sudden death, a heart attack in my sleep. Why? Our forebears didn't live in a biodome. They inhabited this world, but they weren't stuck in it. And so they lived this life with an eye to the next. And if Christ empowers our faith, so should we. Now, why do I mention this? Because I want you to see how our environment and our cultural narrative hinders our ability to recognize and embrace truth. I want you to know what fish tank we're swimming in. If you struggle to trust Jesus' words, to let him empower your faith, it's not just because you reasoned through them and decided against it. It's not just because you think you can't muster faith in God. No, 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 not that simple. It's because you're influenced by things that influence your ability to trust and hear God. Things that might impair your vision or your hearing. And these things, these cultural narratives, they don't necessarily deserve our trust. They don't necessarily warrant the authority they carry in our minds and imaginations. Many of us are more than ready to critically analyze the Bible and to doubt God's word. But do we extend the same suspicion to the other voices and the other narratives that stealthily shape our sensibilities, that might control our capacity to discern truth? Perhaps we should. I don't want you to be discouraged by all this, but I don't want you to be duped either. There are external forces that impede your ability to hear the voice of God and to take seriously reality according to God. Maybe you should scrutinize those, because sometimes, and I have, they're preposterous. Here's the thing. Hebrews 11, it can't, that perspective, it can't live in a biodome. It rips it open and shatters it. 
It says, don't get trapped on earth. It tells us to question things that might cause us to question God. Things that can lead us into a deceived and sometimes self-centered and ultimately pitiful form of life. And so the voice of God brings us to our senses. And it reminds us that some realities are unseen, whether we're talking about radio waves or the voice of Jesus, a greater reality. The faith of Hebrews is a faith that listens to God's voice above all others, not at the exclusion of all other voices, but above all others. And this voice, friends, takes its cue from Jesus who says to us that whatever you lose on account of me, you will gain back multifold. Whatever losses you sustain in this life are not worthy to be compared with the future glory. Romans chapter 8. A voice that says, even if your life is snuffed out, even if you become a martyr in the fullest bodily sense of the word, I will give it back to you. Because what God did for one man, Jesus, in the middle of time, he will do for all of us at the end of time. The resurrection of the body, new life, life made perfect. Victory and vindication will be the last word. That's what comforts and strengthens our faith. Now, of course, some of the stories in Hebrews 11, they don't have immediate resolution. There's not immediate vindication. There have and there will be martyrs. We have to come to terms with that. There are people in this room experiencing acute loss for Christ today. But the Christian, the faith of the Christian knows to look for triumph and the end. And so when we face loss and deprivation for our faith, like those we read about in Hebrews 11, we don't flee. Instead, we find poise and courage and hope. We know what St. Augustine said to be true, that faith is to believe what you do not see, and the reward for this is to see what you believe. Have you considered this? And for many, have you forgotten this? This leads me to my last and brief half point. Look at verse 40. From our present position, from where we sit right now, situated in the midst and mess of history, the final vindication of our faith can seem so, so far away. And while ultimate victory is promised and assured, waiting can be exacting. It can weigh upon us and we can become discouraged or cynical or jaded. We can be tempted to break faith, to operate as if Jesus' words to us are lies, not true. Anyone who's ever given up something considerable or has sustained a big loss on account of faith knows this. You know what it's like to ask God, why? When? You know what it's like to say, come Lord Jesus. At some point or another, all the people we read about in Hebrews asked those same questions. They had those same longings. The first church that read this letter had those same longings and questions. They wondered when ultimate victory would transpire. God knows our fragility and theirs in this regard. He knows how hard it can be to trust Him and wait. And in His graciousness, He gives us a small clue here in verse 40 about why there might be a delay. The point of verse 40 is this. The faithful ones who walked the earth before us, personalities of Hebrews 11, they were denied full perfection, full victory and vindication 
in their life because of God's desire to include us in his people. They didn't experience ultimate victory because of us. They had to wait because Christ wants you and his family. And in like manner, we have to wait because there are also others that Christ wants in his family. And so when we are temporarily denied the ultimate victory of faith, it's not because God is against us or yearns for us to suffer or has forgotten us or is too weak to vindicate us. No. It's because while God loves us, he loves others too. And it's for their sake that he delays just as in the case of those before us, it was for our sake that he delayed. That's all. Do you see the expanse of God's love? In response to this love, let us be intentional to encourage one another in this truth and all the reminders we've gotten in our series on Hebrews. That's what Hebrews 10.25 urges us to do. And let us remind one another, which we desperately need and which I desperately need, that when all is said and done, there will be no loss that can be counted greater than the gain of Christ, of his promises, and of his kingdom. This is God's word. It is true and it's given in love. May the Spirit nourish you with it and furnish your life with a faith that endures. Amen.